welcome. This is the third of the head and neck quizzes. Uh, the first part of this are just the questions. There'll be a brief um, music interlude um, uh, then following, a little thought music, and then the expanded answers. Um, let's see how we go. Uh, you can find the questions on the Anatopod Facebook site um, as well. So let's begin. Uh, question one, the digastric triangle of the neck. A has both of its borders formed by the digastric bellies. B has the hyoglossus muscle as its floor. C is solely innervated by the seventh nerve. D arises from the third branchial arch and E is the point of commencement of Ludwig's angina. Remember, in some of these questions, um, multiple answers may be correct or incorrect. Question two. In a submandibular gland excision, A, the deep and superficial parts of the gland wrap around the hyoglossus muscle. B, the facial artery needs to be ligated both superiorly and posteriorly. C. Has the marginal mandibular division of the seventh facial nerve deep to the capsule. D. The duct lies deep to the lingual nerve. E. The submandibular ganglion is routinely excised. Question 3. The carotid triangle A. Has, its, has as its floor the thyrohyoid muscle. B lies above Chassanac's tubicle. C has the bifurcation of the common carotid artery at the C45 junction. D is divisible into Faraberth's triangle. And E lies below the jugulodigastric lymph node. Question 4. The investing layer of deep cervical fascia A is in continuity with the clavipectoral fascia. B is separable from the parotid fascia. C forms a sling around the omohyoid muscle. D covers the posterior triangle musculature, which runs from the scalenus anterior, the levator scapulae, the splenius and then the semispinalis, and E is separable from the mandibulo-stylohyoid ligament. Question 5. The pharyngobasilar fascia, A, fills the space between the base of the skull and the upper pharyngeal musculature. B, runs along the outside of the pharyngeal musculature, C. Attaches to the base of the skull, behind the foramen lacerum, and behind the carotid canal. And D. Leaves the origin of the levator pilati muscle excluded from the pharynx. Question 6. In a thyroidectomy, A. The external laryngeal nerve can be injured during ligation of the inferior thyroid artery. B. The inferior thyroid artery is ligated close to the gland. 
C. The organ of Zuckerkandl relates to the superior parathyroid gland. And D. May result in excessive traction of the anterior motor branch of the recurrent laryngeal nerve during lobe rotation. Question 7. Regarding the parotid gland, A. It is split into a superficial and a deep lobe by the seventh nerve. B. Has a socia parotidus attached to the parotid duct of Stenson. <coughs> C. The maxillary artery divides deep to the gland. And D. Has a parasympathetic innervation from the pterygopalatine ganglion. Question 8. The sternocleidomastoid, A, has a dual blood supply. B, is solely innervated by the spinal accessory nerve. C, has bilateral central innervation. And D, tilts the head ipsilaterally, turning the face to the other side. Question 9. Regarding the scalenus anterior muscle, a. It lies in series with the longus capitis. B. Lies behind the subclavian vessels. C. Has the phrenic nerve running on its surface from medial to the lateral border of the muscle. D. Is crossed by the inferior belly of the omohyoid. E. The inferior thyroid artery and Sibson's fascia are inferiorly located. And F. Shasanak's tubicle lies laterally. Question 10. The subclavius muscle, A, is enclosed by the clavipectoral fascia. B, has a direct innervation from the segmental spinal nerves. C, can incorporate the accessory phrenic nerve. And D, protects the subclavian vein. Question 11. Regarding the cervical plexus, the descendens hypoglossy supplies the infrahyoid muscles. Um, B. Proprioceptive branches supply the sternocleidomastoid and trapezius separately. The phrenic nerve, C, the phrenic nerve, is purely motor. D. C1 provides hitchhiking branches to all of the infrahyoid muscles, and E, the medial supraclavicular nerve, extends as far as the sternal angle. Question 12. The autonomic ganglia of the head and the neck, A, each have a sensory root, B, is a relay synapse station for sympathetic and parasympathetic preganglionic fibres, C. Have sympathetic plexi which align with the arterial circulation. D. Connect to their nuclei via postganglionic pathways leading from cranial nerves 3, 7 and 9. Question 13. Concerning the osteology of the skull, A. The nuchal line is the surface marker of the tentorium cerebelli. B. The terion is an H-shaped area at the lateral end of the coronal suture, comprising the frontal bone, the lesser wing of the sphenoid, and the parietal bone. 
see the perpendicular plate of the palatine bone contributes to the point of transmission of the pharyngeal branch of the pterygopalatine ganglion. And D, the orbital process of the palatine bone forms the floor of the orbit. Question 14. Concerning the cranial nerves, the central nucleus of the eighth, that is the vestibulocochlear nerve, crosses the pons and medulla. B. The motor nucleus of five is pontine. C. The twelfth nucleus lies below the dorsal basal nucleus, vagal nucleus, and D. The nasal fibres of the optic nerve decussate in the optic chiasm. Question 15. In a trochlear nerve palsy, A. Patients typically have difficulty walking downstairs. B. The eye is neither extorted nor intorted. C. The unaffected eye may intort slightly. And D. The diplopia is most commonly vertically disposed. I recommend that uh, you perhaps have a written copy of each one of these, otherwise it's difficult to do on audio. So uh, either you can listen uh, independently or you can uh, print out a written copy of those from the um, Facebook site uh, and that makes it a little bit easier to then tick off. Good luck.
that is um, uh, Schumann's Trauma Rai or Kinderschenen uh, number seven, scenes from childhood, uh, played by Vladimir Horowitz. Um, let's get into the answers now. Question one was the digastric triangle of the neck. A has both of its borders formed by the digastric bellies. Well, that's obviously true. The digastric musculature, as we know, is poorly named, and that's really a consequence of its embryology rather than its topographical anatomy. Um, the um, second part, of course, is has the hyoglossus muscle as its floor? Well, the mylohyoid is the floor of the triangle, uh, although the hyoglossus is deep to that. And these muscles run at right angles to one another. The hyoglossus is actually a landmark uh, here which splits the lingual nerve and the hypoglossal nerve in front from the lingual artery and vein and the glossopharyngeal nerve beneath. C is solely innervated by the seventh nerve. Well, that goes back to the first point. Of course, all of this is embryology. The anterior belly of the digastric is innervated by the nerve of the first branchial arch, that is the V3 or mandibular nerve, and the posterior belly is innervated by the nerve of the second branchial arch, the facial nerve. So they knew nothing about the embryology and they looked like anterior and posterior bellies of the same muscle and so therefore they're poorly named. D arises from the third branchial arch, well, the third branchial arch is the lesser cornua or high order bone of the hyoid with its attendant muscle, the stylopharyngeus. So that's innervated by the glossopharyngeal nerve. I think there'd be some merit in doing an embryology of the head and neck um, podcast. Uh, we'll do that uh, uh, later on. Um, and E is the point of commencement of Ludwig's angina. Now, E's a bit ambiguous, but we can understand the basis of this question. The point here is, do you understand the central place of the mylohyoid in facial space infection? The muscle has a posterosuperior attachment to the inner aspect of the mandible, appropriately named the mylohyoid ridge. And if you take a look at the inside of a mandible, you, um, uh, if you have access, you'll notice that it's below the mandibular foramen and that it starts at the back molar tooth if you've got teeth within the specimen. So the point is that an infected wisdom tooth here tends to spread below the mylohyoid muscle and into the submandibular and also the submental space. Um, infections that are confined above are, however, a greater risk, and they form Ludwig's angina, which was first described by Wilhelm Friedrich von Ludwig in 1836, was a German physician. But the point is that those ones are the ones that compromise the airway. So as long as you understand the anatomy, it says it's the point of commencement of Ludwig's angina, the digastric triangle of the neck. Well, Ludwig's angina is really above uh, the mylohyoid muscle, so it's not strictly correct. It's a slightly ambiguous question, but I did that deliberately so that you can understand the relationship of the mylohyoid 
either to the diastric triangle below in the submental area or to the formation of Ludwig's angina above. That's the point. Kind of the answer is no, but there are reasons for it being no. Question two. In a submandibular gland excision, A, the deep and superficial parts of the gland wrap around the hyoglossus muscle. Well, there is the bulk of the gland, but that lies on the mylohyoid muscle, and that muscle's running forwards, downwards, and medially to join its fellow in a midline raphe, actually, just like the pelvic floor, hence the term diaphragma oris. So there's a free posterior edge of the mylohyoid muscle and the gland, and there you've got its superficial and deep lobes, and they're wrapped around that. The hyoglossus is only seen by retracting that free edge of the mylohyoid muscle anteriorly, and it's deep. So that answer is false. B, in a submandibular gland excision, the facial artery needs to be ligated both superiorly and posteriorly. And we mention this because this is some operative surgery, but it has some relevant surgical anatomy. B is absolutely correct. The facial artery has a coiled attachment to the posterior part of the gland and needs to be ligated there in order to lift the larger superficial lobe upwards. The facial artery then runs on the top of the gland quite intimately before running across the front of the mandible onto the face, and it needs to be ligated here superiorly so that the upper gland can be freed. That's actually a potential danger point if the artery forceps ever slipped off. C, in the submandibular gland excision, has the marginal mandibular division of the facial nerve deep to the capsule. Well, the marginal mandibular division of the seventh nerve lies up to about two centimetres below the angle of the mandible, so the incision is made deliberately low so as not to injure the nerve. And if the incision is made down onto the capsule of the glands and that layer is then reflected, the nerve will be retracted in the upper part uh, of the specimen and out of harm's way. So it's superficial to the capsule, but the incision is made down to the capsule in order that the nerve is lifted without actually seeing it. Um, because the submandibular gland is usually excised for uh, sialolithiasis, for stone disease, then it doesn't matter if you directly incise onto the capsule of the gland. The only contraindication to that might be a submandibular gland uh, tumour, a carcinoma. Uh, and there even still the principle may be to lift a part of the capsule up to preserve the uh, nerve, uh, but that may vary. Uh, D, the duct lies deep to the lingual nerve. That's deliberately a bit ambiguous as well. The submandibular duct of Wharton uh, has a complicated relationship to the lingual nerve. The nerve is actually initially superficial to the duct, but then it runs under it by taking a swerve. So it depends where one is as to what lies in front of what. And that can be important, obviously, for the treatment of a submandibular stone, for example. If a calculus is palpable in the floor of the mouth, then a suture can be run behind the calculus against the bone and by pulling the stitch up, it traps the stone in front of the main gland so that one can incise onto it directly, and that then creates a fistula into the mouth. The suture can, however, occasionally damage the lingual nerve, which is running at this level very close to the bone. So the point of the question is to understand 
really, the relationship of the duct and the lingual nerve. And then E, the submandibular ganglion is routinely excised. Um, well, um, then I would say that in general, the submandibular ganglion is taken, of course, with the specimen. And it hangs off the lingual nerve via a couple of attachments which are visible, and they're best clipped with a small hemoclip, and the ganglion then comes away with the specimen. And really what you've got to do is make sure also that you remember the ins and outs of this ganglion, that is, its pre- and post-ganglionic pathways. That's a bit why the question is there. Question three. The carotid triangle, A, has, its, has as its floor uh, the thyrohyoid muscle. Well, the floor of the triangle is the hyoglossus, the thyrohyoid muscle, so that's correct, and also the inferior and middle constrictor muscles. So it's a little bit more complicated than that, but the answer is correct. B lies above Chassanac's tubicle. Well, the bottom end of the triangle is at Chassanac's tubicle, which is the anterior tubicle of C6, and that's the point where the common carotid artery can be palpated or compressed. You can remind yourself of the boundaries of the triangle as the posterior belly of the digastric, the superior belly of the amohyoid, the anterior belly of the sternocleidomastoid. So the answer uh, is correct. And C has the bifurcation of the common carotid at the C4-5 junction. Well, generally, the bifurcation is actually at the C3-4 junction, but it can be lower and it can be higher. Uh, in general, I'd say the answer to that is um, uh, false. It's normally at the C3-4 junction. Uh, but the point is that you understand where the carotid bifurcation is because if it's particularly high, that can be very difficult in an internal carotid endarterectomy. The posterior belly of digastric can be divided and um, that gives a bit of extra room. Remember that the occipital artery runs on its lower surface and the posterior auricular on its upper surface, so it may need to be dealt with if that muscle is to be divided. But the room to place a high internal carotid artery clamp is limited if the bifurcation is very high. In order to expand that space, the styloid process can be bluntly or blindly fractured by just pushing deeply in the area. And in some cases, uh, one reads about the temporomandibular joint in a very difficult case being dislocated in order to provide more room. This sort of approach may be important also in a high internal carotid injury, like a very high so-called zone three stab wound uh, of the neck. So these can be important from an anatomical point of view. D uh, is divisible into Faraboeuf's triangle. Now, Faraboeuf's triangle is named for the French surgeon Louis-Hubert Faraboeuf. It includes as its boundaries the internal jugular vein, the common facial vein, which is an IJV tributary and which typically crosses the common carotid artery bifurcation, and the 12th nerve, which crosses the bifurcation, that's often held down, as we know, by a small sternomastoid branch of the occipital artery. So this is a little bit complicated. These are all the landmarks. That leads, of course, into the ANSA cervicalis. So you should remind yourself also at this time, if you want to stop, of the ANSA, its innovation of the infrahyoid muscles, 
and of the C1 connection, particularly to innovate the thyrohyoid and geniohyoid, which this comes from the occipital somites, and this is part of the innovation of the cranial accessory. And then I had finally another one lies below the jugulodigastric lymph node. Well, the jugulodigastric lymph node lies here, in fact, against the common facial vein. Um, so that's not quite correct. And that may be the site, uh, typically, of a metastasis from a tonsillar carcinoma. That's why it's got clinical relevance. Um, question four. The investing layer of deep cervical fascia A is in continuity with the clavipectoral fascia. Well, that's true. The clavicle acts as a break. It splits the clavipectoral fascia around the subclavius, and in the space between the clavicle and the acromion, it embraces the pectoralis minor. It's very important when we talk about the upper limb and also axillary dissection that we understand the relationship of the fascia around the pectoralis minor because it runs in front and behind. It allows you to put your hand behind it and you can divide it to directly expose the second portion of the axillary artery. It's actually critical in the conduct of a mastectomy or an axillary dissection whether or not the pectoralis minor is preserved or divided uh, as well as in the division of the axillary artery. Um, is separable from the parotid fascia. Now we're talking about the investing layer of deep cervical fascia. Well, the area between the angle of the mandible and the mastoid is actually a complex split around the parotid gland. So it is a direct continuity of the investing layer of deep cervical fascia. So that's correct. Forms a sling around the omohyoid muscle. It's also correct. The sling of the inferior belly of the omohyoid is important because it's a central part of a radical neck dissection. You can open directly into that sling and the inferior belly of the amylhyoid just sort of squirrels away after you divide its superior belly. So it's a landmark in any form of radical neck or even modified radical neck dissection. And it separates the amylhyoid triangle from the carotid triangle. Uh, D covers the posterior triangle musculature which runs from the scalenus anterior and then next the levator scapulae, the splenius and the semispinalis. If you look at this region of the triangle of the neck as you look at the muscles from below going upwards, that's the correct order. So that's also a correct answer. The muscular list is correct as seen over the root of the neck. Uh, but uh, obviously this is covered by the prevertebral fascia. And then E is separable from the mandibulo-stylo-hyoid ligament. That's only really for those uh, who are doing well. That's a little bit of trivia. It's a thickening of this fascia between the angle of the mandible and the anterior margin of the sternocleidomastoid. And uh, that's been called by some texts the mandibulo-stylo-hyoid ligament. And that ligament can be traced as far as the lower part of the stylohyoid muscle and its ligament. So that's a little real bit of minor trivia just thrown in. Um, question five. The pharyngobasilar fascia A fills the space uh, between the base of the skull and the upper pharyngeal musculature. Well, that's absolutely true. That's, the, that's really its job. The exit of the auditory tube is here. This is the so-called sinus of Morgani where there are 
rare tumours, and that includes the auditory tube, the glossopharyngeal nerve, the levator palati, the ascending palatine artery, the palatine branch of the ascending pharyngeal artery. All of those structures are in that space between the top end of the superior constrictor and the base of the skull. And the superior constrictor hangs off that like a hammock and it's filled by this pharyngobasilar fascia and the structures I've mentioned. So that if you've got a nasopharyngeal cancer there, then that can potentially involve V3 uh, laterally in the foramen ovale at that point. And that produces the so-called trotter's triad. Uh, it involves the auditory tube, so the patient has conductive deafness. It involves the glossopharyngeal nerve, so they had a, have an ipsilateral soft palate palsy. And most typically, it will involve a bit of V3 if it extends up to the, <clears throat> just near up laterally to the foramen ovale, so that they'll have typically irritation or trigeminal neuralgia. So if we understand their anatomy, we can understand that space. Coming back to the pharyngobasilar fascia, B runs along the outside of the pharyngeal musculature. Well, that's incorrect. The pharyngobasilar fascia is on the inside of the pharyngeal muscles. The buccopharyngeal fascia is on the outside. And C attaches to the base of the skull behind the foramen lacerum and then behind the carotid canal. Well, C is incorrect in its minutiae, really. The fascia is attached to the base of the skull, all right, but it runs from the pharyngeal tubule in front of the foramen magnum, but it extends and passes over the top of the longus capitis muscle, the posterior margin of the foramen lacerum. So it's on top of this foramen, and therefore it's in front of the, aim, uh, of the uh, carotid canal. Uh, I recommend that you take the skull base and run over this as it crosses the petrous temporal bone at this level and trace the pharyngobasilar fascia. And finally in the questions, the pharyngobasilar fascia leaves the origin of the levator palati muscle excluded from the pharynx. Well, that's wrong because the fascia forms a recess that leaves the levator palati entirely intrapharyngeal. Question 6. Few trick questions in there. In a thyroidectomy, the external laryngeal nerve can be injured during ligation of the inferior thyroid artery. Well, hopefully no one is asleep. The risk to the external laryngeal nerve is with superior pole ligation. And so that's the relationship between the superior thyroid artery and the external laryngeal nerve. Uh, there are many classifications you might remember if you want to go back to the head and neck viscera 2 podcast. There's a Cernia classification, there are other classifications, the Friedman associated with the inferior constrictor or the Kierner classification which relates to the upper thyroid pole or it might be related to Joel's triangle, laterally the upper thyroid pole, the superior thyroid vessels, superiorly by the attachment of the strap muscles to the thyroid cartilage. There are a number of classification systems, but the external laryngeal nerve can be injured uh, as it goes to the cricothyroid muscle, the upper part of the thyropharyngeus, during ligation of the superior thyroid artery, not the inferior thyroid artery. Uh, B, the inferior thyroid artery is ligated close to the gland. Well, that depends a little bit on your philosophy, but it's largely true. The inferior thyroid is now ligated on the gland, whereas in the past it was sought very laterally. 
you'd go to the lateral part of the gland and ligate it in isolation. And uh, the inferior thyroid artery has a variable relationship to the recurrent laryngeal nerve. Sometimes it's behind it, sometimes it's in front of it, sometimes the nerve splits around it. And uh, if this was ligated out in the lateral part of the gland as it used to be done, it invariably rendered the parathyroid glands ischemic. So there was quite a bit of post-operative hypocalcemia that was sometimes difficult to treat. So now, in fact, we don't do that. Uh, the inferior thyroid artery can always be seen in the lateral field coming up from underneath the common carotid artery, but we ligate it on the gland. Uh, C, the organ of Zuckerkandl, relates to the superior parathyroid gland. Well, the organ of Zuckerkandl is part of the macroscopically recognisable thyroid gland, which is near the ligament of Berry as the most posterior part of the superior gland, and it is a landmark for the superior parathyroid, so that is correct. And D may result in excessive traction of the anterior motor branch of the recurrent laryngeal nerve during lobe rotation. D is actually true. Uh, the ligament of Berry here actually shifts its uh, recurrent laryngeal nerve relationship if the lobe is twisted at all, and that results in a genue of the extra uh, uh, of the extralaryngeal nerve. And the small anterior branch of the recurrent laryngeal nerve here is motor. So if there's any bleeding at this point or excessive nerve branching or an adherent ligament of Berry, then the nerve can be injured. So it is relevant that this changes the orientation of the recurrent laryngeal nerve if the lobe is in any way rotated. So it's a bit of a complex question, but it, it is true. Um, question seven. Regarding the parotid gland, A, it is split into a superficial and a deep lobe by the seventh nerve. Well, that's true. The separation of the superficial and the deep parotid lobes by the seventh nerve is a bit artificial, but the answer is true. It actually came about in order to create an operation which is called a conservative superficial parotidectomy. So everything in front of the facial nerve is taken away. Now, strictly the facial nerve kind of really runs through the gland, but we have this artificial operation that everything in front represents what's called the conservative superficial parotidectomy, that everything deep to that is then the deep lobe of the parotid. And that was designed, uh, Michael Hobsley from London was one of the designers of that in the uh, uh, 70s and 80s, really to stop the risk of relapse of the most common parotid tumour, a mixed pleomorphic salivary adenoma, which was previously treated by simple enucleation. And the reason for recurrence there was that the capsule of that tumour showed microscopic infiltration. So the people who were doing simple enucleations had a very high incidence of recurrence. And so this idea of the conservative superficial parotidectomy was established. Hobsley was one of the big establishers of it. Uh, and the aim of this was to stop these terrible recurrences on the side of the face of this locally recurrent but essentially benign tumour. So the idea is anatomically that the facial nerve splits a superficial from a deep lobe, but it's somewhat artificial, but that's the history of it. So A is correct. Uh, has a socioparotidus attached to the parotid duct of Stenson? 
The socia parotidis is attached to the duct, and it can be a site, obviously, of a parotid tumour. I think for interest we should remember that 80% of salivary gland tumours are in the parotid gland, with about 80% of them being benign. Of the 15% of submandibular tumours that are left, half of them are malignant. And of the 5% of the minor salivary gland tumours, most, about 90% or so, are malignant. So there are about 450 to 750 or so minor salivary glands, which are mostly located on the palate. Uh, let's have a look at C. C, the maxillary artery, divides deep to the gland. C is correct. The gland acts as a watershed. The seventh and the fa seventh nerve and the facial vein, the retromandibular vein here, is in the so-called facio-venous plane between the artificial, superficial and deep lobes in the way I've described them with the maxillary artery and the superficial temporal artery splitting off deep to the gland. And more deeply, of course, is the internal carotid artery and the pharyngeal wall. And D has a parasympathetic innervation from the pterygopalatine ganglion. Well, D, of course, is wrong. The parasympathetic nervous system for the parotid is the otic ganglion. And I would suggest don't forget to revise this section of the autonomic nervous system of the head and neck, which is on a podcast. I think it's the fourth podcast. Um, question eight. The sternocleidomastoid has a dual blood supply. Well, A is correct. Uh, the sternomastoid branch of the occipital is superiorly and the sternomastoid branch of the superior thyroid artery is below. And they're important for muscle transfer, which can be relevant if someone, for example, has had a radical neck dissection and radiotherapy. One can, of course, transect the upper origin of the muscle and just rotate it in front of the great vessels so that you have coverage. But uh, the sternocleidomastoid can be used as a rotational uh, flap based on its blood and nerve supply. Sternocleidomastoid returning again is solely innervated by the spinal accessory. Uh, well, get the basis of the question, B is not strictly correct, it's not solely innovated. The spinal accessory is the motor supply, but there are proprioceptive nerves from C2 and C3 from the cervical plexus, and it's a value one imagines, presumably for knowledge of where the head is in space, needing a, a proprioceptive input. C has bilateral central innervation. C is not correct. The sternocleidomastoid is unilaterally innervated, but the trapezius is bilaterally innervated so that the head can be turned to one side to sort of see what's going on. For example, the right sternocleidomastoid turns the head to the left with then the right cerebral cortex controlling that. And D tilts the head ipsilaterally, turning the face to the other side. Well, D is obviously correct. The sternocleidomastoid turns the face to the opposite side. And that's how we test for an accessory nerve injury. When both of the muscles act together, their neck flexes, although as the muscle doesn't act in isolation, its activity really depends on the activity of the other muscles around it. Um, question nine, regarding the scalenus anterior muscle, a, it lies in series with the longus capitis muscle. 
where the muscle arises from the anterior tubercles of the third to the sixth cervical vertebrae, and it is in series, lying end to end with slips of the longest capitis muscle above, so that's correct. Uh, B lies behind the subclavian vessels. Well, obviously, the subclavian vein lies in front with the artery behind, so that's false. C has the phrenic nerve running on its surface from medial to the lateral border of the muscle. That's also false. The phrenic nerve is the major scalenus landmark, and it runs from the lateral aspect of the muscle to the medial border of the muscle. D is crossed by the inferior belly of the amohyoid. Well, that's obviously correct. It crosses with the transverse cervical and suprascapular vessels. E, the inferior thyroid artery and Sibson's fascia are inferiorly located. E isn't correct. The inferior thyroid artery and Sibson's fascia, the suprapleural membrane, lie medial to the muscle, not inferior. There's actually a small triangle created at the medial edge of the scalenus with the base of the subclavian artery and the neck of the first rib. And the apex of that triangle is Chassanac's tubercle of C6, which we've already mentioned, and that's medially located where the common carotid artery can be compressed. And that space, um, in the way of defined the little triangle, contains the stellate ganglion, the vertebral artery, and the vertebral vein. Uh, so there's Chassanac's uh, F, Chassanac's tubercle lies laterally, so that's false. The apex of Chassanac's tubercle is medially located. Uh, question 10. The subclavius muscle A is enclosed by the clavipectoral fascia. Well, that's pretty easy. A little soft, but A is correct. The muscle arises from the costochondral junction of the first rib, and it inserts into the clavicle in the subclavian groove, and the clavicle kind of interrupts the investing layer of deep cervical fascia, and the clavipectoral fascia uh, then forms below that. B has a direct innervation from the segmental spinal nerves. Not strictly correct. The innervation is the C5-6 nerve root to subclavius. They come from the nerve roots, but um, basically it's from the nerve to subclavius. So strictly incorrect. C can incorporate the accessory phrenic nerve. Well, this muscle can be associated with the accessory phrenic nerve, which can be relevant for a brachial plexus injury that might be operable or reparable. I want to give a little digression here into the so-called Klumpka-Dejarine-type injuries. These are the so-called C5-6 injuries, which occur in uh, babies where there's shoulder dystocia, or in an adult, for example, usually a motorbike accident where the head is stuck one way and the arm is pulled the other way. And normally what happens is that these little rootlets get pulled out directly off the spinal cord. So if someone has a CT myelogram and there are meningocils, essentially this is an inoperable or irreparable uh, injury of the brachial plexus. Now, if you examine someone, if you can examine them, often the limb is flail or painful, but if you can examine them, you're looking for injuries of um, <clears throat> that are from the roots of the brachial plexus. We'll talk about this more when we talk about the upper limb. Um, but uh, the root branch injuries that you're looking at 
are uh, very close to the spinal cord. So if somebody has an injury to the long thoracic nerve, in other words, they've got an injury of the serratus anterior, there's winging of the scapula, that's a very proximal injury. If they have an injury to the um, dorsal scapular nerve, uh, they can't brace their shoulders back, the rhomboids are denervated, then that's a very proximal injury as well. And because of the connection between this and the paravertebral ganglia, an associated Horner's syndrome, uh, which is really basically a disruption of the cervical sympathetic, also indicates a very close injury to the spinal cord and likely to be uh, irreparable. In theory, if there's an accessory phrenic nerve of some significance, they could also have a diaphragmatic palsy. So that was the point of adding that. It's a little bit more complicated to know something about that. And then finally, D, uh, the subclavius muscle protects the subclavian vein. Um, uh, then the answer or the theory to that is yes, it does, uh, that... Um, uh, it's a little muscle that if there's a clavicular fracture, the subclavian vein is buffered by the presence of the subclavian, uh, by the uh, subclavius. That accessory phrenic nerve, uh, by the way, can also arise <coughs> from the ansa cervicalis. Occasionally it can come from the nerve to stylohyoid. There's a very good article by uh, uh, Marius Lucas on that in the Annals of Thoracic Surgery in 2006 for those who are interested. Question 11, regarding the cervical plexus, A, the descendens hypoglossy uh, supplies the infrahyoid muscles. Well, the descendens hypoglossy is also the same as the superior root of the ansa cervicalis, so this does innervate the infrahyoids. B, proprioceptive branches supply the sternocleidomastoid and trapezius separately, and that's quite right. There are separate root proprioceptive branches <coughs> typically C2 and C3 to the sternocleidomastoid and C3 and C4 to the trapezius. Um, so um, uh, that is correct. C, the phrenic nerve is purely motor. Well, the phrenic nerve is the nerve of the septum transversum. That's the bit that separates the chest from the abdomen. It's also the bit that forms the fibrous pericardium and the central tendon of the diaphragm. So this uh, particular nerve is motor to the diaphragm, but it's also sensory to the mediastinal pleura and to the sensitive pericardium, the parietal serous pericardium and fibrous pericardium and a bit of the peritoneum on the undersurface. And um, the point about that is that because it embryologically comes from the same point, that the central tendon of the diaphragm and the fibrous pericardium are fused uh, that's of embryological significance, but it's of clinical significance too. Uh, a patient who has had a motor vehicle accident uh, may be hypotensive and nothing a great deal to be found in the abdomen if their abdomen is explored, but by just opening the uh, central tendon of the diaphragm, uh, you're straight into the pericardium and you can see whether someone had hemopericardium. Um, and that's based on the anatomical and embryological origins of these uh, two. Um, so, what's the next one? C1 provides hitchhiking branches to all of the infrahyoid muscles. Well, that's not strictly true. The C1 hypoglossal nerve connection occurs with the development of occipital somites 
and the development of the tongue, and it hitchhikes to innovate specifically the geniohyoid and the thyrohyoid. And the easiest way to remember that is that these muscles are more superior than the other infrahyoids, that is the sternohyoid, the sternothyroid, and the omohyoid. And then E, the medial supraclavicular nerve, extends as far as the sternal angle. Well, that's certainly correct. It's a big nerve with the intermediate passing down to the anterior axillary line. The lateral runs over the cape area and posteriorly as far as the spine of the scapula. So these big cutaneous nerves have big coverage. The point about that is that that nerve bits of it can certainly be injured if a supraclavicular incision was made, that used to be a typical registrar or senior resident operation. People would make an incision into the supraclavicular region and remove one of the supraclavicular nodes to diagnose sarcoidosis. You don't need to do that now. Um, and um, that actually caused quite a bit of morbidity, that operation, one of which was an area of anaesthesia over bits, often the intermediate part of the supraclavicular nerve. The only other interesting thing about that is the supraclavicular nerve coming from the cervical plexus is along with the intercostobrachial nerve, uh, which is the collateral branch of the second intercostal nerve, the only part of the upper limb that doesn't receive its cutaneous innervation from the brachial plexus. And that has to do with the way the brachial plexus is dragged out as the limb bud comes out and develops. And so it drags a bit of the cervical plexus and the intercostobrachial nerve across into its supply. The intercostobrachial nerve is supplying the inner aspect of the arm along with the medial cutaneous nerve of the arm and the cape area just being pulled over the top of the shoulder. So that's why this uh, slight uh, cutaneous association exists. Um, question 12, the autonomic ganglia of the head and neck uh, a, each have a sensory root. The ganglia are mixed and they have sensory roots, motor roots and autonomic roots as well as sympathetic roots. And each, however, has its unique elements. For example, the ciliary has a sensory root through V1, a parasympathetic and a sympathetic root. The submandibular ganglion doesn't really have a sensory root like that not typically described. The pterygopalatine ganglion has the unique feature of the sympathetic and parasympathetic roots combining as the nerve of the pterygoid canal, or so-called Vidian's nerve. And the otic ganglion has a rather unique motor root. And you've got to review those and that uh, uh, podcast. Again, B of this is the autonomic ganglion of the head and neck is a relay synapse station for sympathetic and parasympathetic preganglionic fibres. It kind of looks nice, but of course B is wrong because although these nerves use the ganglia to hitchhike, the only synapse is parasympathetic. So the sympathetics are not synapsing in there. They'll traverse across there. C, have sympathetic plexi which align with the arterial circulation. That's correct. The sympathetic plexi do follow the arterial tree. So you'll have a vertebral plexus, you'll have a subclavian plexus, you'll have an external carotid artery plexus and an internal carotid artery plexus called the carotid nerve. And D, connect to their nuclei via postganglionic pathways leading from cranial nerves 3, 7 and 9. Well, D is incorrect. They're all preganglionic pathways from these cranial nerves. 
So remembering the pathway is simple. You've got a nucleus. So for everything up there, it's one that includes the Eddinger-Westphal nucleus, the superior and inferior salivatory nuclei. These then give way to the preganglionic pathways, which are biocranial nerves, 3, 7 and 9. In 3, it's by 3. 7 has either the quarter tympani, going to the submandibular gland, uh, ganglion, or the greater petrosal, going to the pterygopalatine ganglion. And through nine, there is the lesser petrosal. So these are all the nerves of the cranials that go through as preganglionic pathway. They then synapse in these individual ganglia, and then they hitchhike out along the relevant area of the trigeminal nerve. So they'll go across from V1 with the ciliary ganglion, or a jump from V2 to V1 for lacrimation, which is unique, or V3 via the lingual nerve, or V3 that is going down to the submandibular ganglion, sublingual gland, submandibular gland, and V3 via the auriculotemporal nerve, which goes across to the territory of the parotid. Um, question 13, concerning the osteology of the skull, A, the nuchal line is the surface marker of the tentorium cerebelli. Well, that's correct. It's also the level of the transverse sinus, and the exterior attachments of the trapezius medially, the sternocleidomastoid laterally, and deep to that, the splenius. There actually are really three lines here. There's the superior nuchal line, which is really what we're referring to. There is an inferior nuchal line and a weaker, highest nuchal, which attaches the occipitalis. The terion is an H-shaped area at the lateral end of the coronal suture, comprising the frontal, uh, bone, the lesser wing of the sphenoid bone, and the parietal bone. Well, that all looks pretty good, except it's not the lesser wing of the sphenoid, it's the greater wing of the sphenoid. So that's actually incorrect. A little trick question. C, the perpendicular plate of the palatine bone contributes to the point of transmission of the pharyngeal branch of the pterygopalatine ganglion. What the heck's that about? Well, it's correct. The pterygoid canal lies medial in line with the medial pterygoid plate, and that transmits the nerve to the pterygoid canal and the artery. And here, this forms the medial wall of the pterygopalatine fossa. But here's also a so-called vaginal process of the perpendicular plate of the palatine bone, and that forms part of what's called the palato-vaginal canal, where the pharyngeal branch of the pterygopalatine ganglion and a little associated pharyngeal artery coming from the maxillary artery, pass to innovate the area at the back of the tonsil. So the point about that is the perpendicular plate of the palatine bone does contribute to the formation of the palato-vaginal canal. So this is where the pharyngeal branch of the pterygopalatine ganglion runs backwards to the pharynx. So that's correct. And D, the orbital process of the palatine bone forms part of the floor of the orbit, and that we know is correct as well. That part of the palatine bone, a very small amount of it, is actually squeezed in between the maxilla inferiorly, the ethmoid medially, and the sphenoid bone laterally and superiorly. It's part of the seven bones that make up the orbit and the back of the orbit. Um, question 14. Concerning the cranial nerves, the central nucleus of the vestibulocochlear nerve crosses the pons and the medulla. Well, that's true. 
B, the motor nucleus of 5, the trigeminal, is pontine. And that's also true. The pons also houses the motor nucleus of the abducent nerve and the facial nerve. C, the 12th nucleus lies below the dorsal vagal nucleus. That's actually incorrect, and I recommend that you look at a map of the pons and medulla to get this point. The dorsal motor nucleus of the vagus, the hypoglossal nucleus, they're at about the same level. Medially is the solitary nucleus, the so-called gustatory nucleus, and laterally is the nucleus ambiguous. The 11th nucleus, or accessory nucleus, lies below that cluster. And then D, the nasal fibres of the optic nerve decussate in the optic chiasm. Well, that's correct. Uh, these are second-order ganglion retinal cells with, as an example, the right optic tract containing fibres from the right half of each retina. So the nasal field of the right eye and the temporal field of the left eye. So if we've got to remind ourselves of these lesions, compression of the optic chiasm by a pituitary tumour, for example, if we remember, causes a bitemporal hemianopia. A lesion of the left optic tract leads to a right homonymous hemianopia. A lesion of the lower fibres of the left optic radiation, for example, like an abscess of the temporal lobe, for example, would lead typically to a right upper quadrantic hemianopia and a lesion of the upper fibres of the left optic radiation, say a parietal lobe tumour, for example, would lead to a right lower <coughs> quadrantic hemianopia. And finally, we're getting there, question 15. In a trochlear nerve palsy, A, patients typically have difficulty walking downstairs. That's absolutely true. With the lesion, the eye can't really look downwards when turned in. So diplopia often also extends not just to walking downstairs, but also to reading. B, the eye is neither extorted nor intorted. This is some of the fine print, but B is incorrect. The overplay of the inferior oblique, the superior oblique being paralysed, slightly extorts the eye unopposed. And that's compensated for by patients who typically tend to tilt their head backwards towards the opposite shoulder so that they can realign the visual axes, reduce their diplopia. C, the unaffected eye may intort slightly. That actually is correct. And that is to compensate further for, the, for diplopia. The good eye tends to intort a little bit. So it's kind of to sublimate the diplopia. It's a bit more complex than we might think. And D, diplopia is most commonly vertically disposed. So D is also correct because the vertical diplopia, that's one image above another, is very common. But in a trochlear nerve palsy, the images can sometimes be tilted or even rotated on one another, what's called a torsional diplopia rather than a vertical diplopia. The diplopia is actually binocular and it can sometimes get worse and in some cases improve as the gaze shifts. So there's a bit of variability with it. Trochlear palsy isn't common, but it may occur as a congenital phenomenon. When it does, there's a syndrome or a constellation of syndromes called congenital cranial disinnovation syndrome. 
they're a group of sort of neurodevelopmental disorders of the brain stem and cranial nerves, and they include congenital fibrosis of the extraocular muscles, uh, so-called Duane syndrome, where the eye can't either look medially or laterally, uh, Mebius syndrome, where there's a, a sixth and a seventh nerve uh, palsy, a sort of developmental disorder, and things of this nature. You can look these things up if you wish. I'm, I'm no paediatric neuro-ophthalmologist, so my knowledge disappears beyond this point, but they're interesting to look up. Uh, an acquired uh, trochlear nerve palsy, on the other hand, is usually a non-specific feature of head trauma. But the idea behind the question is to understand the movement of the extraocular muscles. And trochlear palsy is a little bit more complicated uh, than one might imagine, just as the superior oblique becomes uh, paralysed. I'm hoping that we'll add <coughs> a fourth head and neck uh, quiz um, later on. We've had a slight um, hiatus. And uh, I think uh, we want to complete also the history uh, of anatomy section. There's about another three of those to go, and then we're moving on to the uh, upper limb. Um, thanks so much for listening.